fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. How are we? Excellent. Good to see you. Who's all ready for Christmas? Better question. Who is not remotely ready for Christmas? Yes, you make me feel better. That is great. And uh, so good job. We have a whole week. A whole week. We're fine. Uh, But we are glad uh, that you are with us tonight. And uh, we are one week out from Christmas weekend, uh, which means that, like Natalie said, this is the last time that we gather here over the course of our four services and two campuses uh, for, for Christmas, next week, all services together in one place at one time at the Curry Center. Uh, it is going to be an awesome time, probably our single largest gathering as a church. And so kind of a cool opportunity. Hope that you guys are planning to be there. Hope that you're bringing a bunch of people with you to be a part of that. And uh, it's going to be good, right? Perfect. Um, Before we kind of get underway tonight, we actually have someone who wants to share a few words with us. Uh, As you might remember, we just raised $70,000, as you might remember. Remember that time a week ago? I mean, I can understand that it slipped your mind. Um, We ended up raising $70,000 to build two of those new micro unit kind of housing units for uh, the project that our city is a part of to help end chronic homelessness. And uh, so this kind of project and this whole plan really kind of came from the heart and can be traced back to our own mayor, Mike O'Brien. And uh, Mike actually served on city council for about 17 years, tackled all kinds of issues, but he would say that the one he is most passionate about and the one that he has had his greatest impact with would be this issue of homelessness. And he has chaired multiple kind of committees and campaigns that have helped kind of combat this issue. And one of the first things he did when he became mayor back in 2016 was to put together his mayor's task force on homelessness and kind of figure out and rally uh, kind of the city and community uh, around this idea, some new fresh ways to combat that. And so this, this project that we've just been a part of is actually one of the key initiatives that came out of his own task force. And so really the only reason that we get to be a part of something uh, as exciting as this is because our own mayor is committed Uh, to kind of reaching out to the down and out in our own city and community. And so that is a blessing for Fredericton for sure. And so uh, it is our privilege to have Mayor Mike O'Brien with us tonight. Come on up. Good evening, Crosspoint. Thanks for the uh, opportunity, Pastor, to uh, to speak here very briefly tonight. I uh, was raised in the Catholic Church. And my late mom, my mom passed away a year ago, my dad four years ago. They both made it to almost 92, had great lives. But uh, dad, as a young boy, uh, contemplated the priesthood at one time. But it just didn't work out. But he found a different way to, to serve. He served his country in World War II and uh, raised a family. Mom was always very hopeful that as a boy, I'd be an altar boy or maybe be a little more committed into the church. Mom, look at me up here in front of a church right now, right? Huh? <laughs> This might be as close as it comes, but she, uh, she'd be proud of me regardless. Look, 
I've been at this game for a few years now, and um, probably it, it was the community reached out to me in 2006. I've been on council since 2001, and proud of the work that we do and passionate about what I do. But you know, we pass bylaws and we balance the budget, and we make sure your water's clean, and we protect you through fire and police, and that's what we do. We do that all the time. But man, I always thought there was something more to it. What else could there be? What, what else could I do? And it was about 2000, 2006, I was cutting the ribbon at a new affordable housing development down on Brunswick Street. I was deputy mayor at the time, and these two women that worked every day in the field of protect, looking after people, outreach work, they were there. And of course, I get to come ride in as the deputy mayor and say a few words, cut the ribbon, and feel good about it, while these other people have been working years, every day, helping people. And all of a sudden, I could see, I could see they were catching my eye across the building, and I was starting to leave. And they said, no, don't go yet. We, they kind of pinned me in the corner. They said, there's nobody on municipal council to be a spokesperson for affordable housing or social issues, because it's not really things that the municipal government does. That's what provincial and federal governments do. And they said, well, we need somebody. And I said, well, why me? They said, well, we, we just feel that you're the one. So maybe in a strange way, some divine way, if you want to think that way, that somebody connected with me. And they said, we need you to be a, a voice. Oh, I'd, man, I was a little scared about it. But about a month later, I met with them again and agreed to try to take on these issues municipally. We formed the... Uh, the first affordable housing committee and became advocates and educated the public and broke down barriers. And then uh, th two or three years ago, I was recruited to chair the Community Action Group on Homelessness, where we put a, a plan together to end chronic homelessness and brought different groups. So now the, the, the faith community is working closely together. The, uh, the hospital is working with the shelter. There's working with the court system. People aren't falling through the cracks like they did before. But man, there was more to do. So uh, I became mayor, and these same people, and I feel like a phony sometimes because I get, get to get up and talk in front of people like yourselves, but, but I'm a spokesperson, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm supposed to be a, a leader. I, I'll, take, I'll, I'll take that, but I'm a spokesperson for the people who do the great work. So the people that do the great work came to me, and I was mayor, and they said, Mayor, you have an opportunity to do something more. So, you know, people are always pushing you. You don't do these things alone. They said, so... Uh, you know, take advantage of, of, your of your position. So we did. We called this Mayor's Task Force on Homelessness. And people came together like never before again. And uh, one of the outcomes of this was the Housing First initiative. Because if somebody's hungry, you give them a sandwich. Sandwich, sorry. But they're hungry again in four or five hours. And you give them another sandwich, and they're hungry again. And that's what we were doing. We're putting people in shelters or out on the street. And if they were sick, they go into the emergency, and they come back on the street. If they have an addiction, they go to the court, and they go into jail, and they come back out, and the police chase them. And, they, and it just goes around. And the, the country spending billions of dollars just cycling people through and not making anybody better. So Housing First is the initiative where, look, you put somebody in a shelter, and I've been at testimonials, of, or put them in a house. I've been at testimonials where people have been given a home. A young single mother with children has been given a Habitat for Humanity home or affordable housing home, or somebody from the shelter has been giving a spot. And I visited them, and they can lock the door, and they can put the picture up of their mother or their children that they're separated from, for whatever reason. Their mind settles down. They can accept help. They can accept the counseling that they need. They can fight their addiction. 
They could go back to school and get their GED. Maybe all they can do is take less out of the system because they're more secure. But that's a victory, right? That's a victory. So you need somewhere for people to go, and it's called housing first. You put people in a spot, let their life settle down, they accept help, you wrap them with the services that they need, and they will succeed. To whatever level it is, they will succeed. But we needed more units. And the target was, in our plan that we developed three years ago, other, in addition to all these different things that I'm talking about, wrapped around services and support and faith community and nonprofits working closer together and, and pushing the other levels of government, make sure there's big funding from programs, we needed at least 40 more of these uh, housing first units. And so a good friend of mine took on the challenge to chair that and started with another group raising funds and, um, and somehow it came to this church and I'm so glad it did because you've, you've just went, uh, you went above and beyond, above and beyond. Uh, you've raised enough funds for two plus units. Um, we're going to start building, we have enough funds in the bank now uh, to build, to start with eight to ten of these right away and we have commitments for about, well, that's, that's, cash, that's cash in hand and we have commitments for about 20 to 22 units already out of the 40. So the community has come alive people and it's people like yourself that are taking the, rain, uh, the bull by the horns and making a difference. Because it does, this is, in a country as rich and blessed as Canada, in a province, we have issues. But we're blessed here. And in a city as prosperous as this city, everybody deserves a seat at the table. Everybody. Find their own way, their own level, but they deserve a seat at the table. But the first thing they got to do is people have to understand and then they have to react, and then we have to give them a place to live. And they have to get their dignity and be able to be humbly accept the help that's out there. And it works. I remember two or three years ago walking down Queen Street, and I always, I don't donate to everybody, but yes, I'm a sucker for that. But I was talking to one man, and it just hit me, just like a ton of bricks. What, what part of my history, my my paternal family came here 370 years ago to the, the shores of what is now Nova Scotia. And eventually my family made it to the Fredericton area. But what in my past, what blessed or divine, again, if you want through the Christmas season, what part of my past allowed my family to come over on a ship, survive winters 370 years ago with the help of our indigenous forefathers, and let me be here today as mayor? And the person I'm talking to is on the street homeless with mental health issues or addictions. What, what, what happened that put me in this privileged position and that person in that position? We're equal. We're absolutely equal. But maybe it's just somebody didn't understand or didn't give them the hand, hand up at the right time. Who knows? It's not for me to challenge somebody's position, but we can help. And maybe my role as mayor, other than balancing budgets and trying to do something with the fracks, <laughs> and I challenge anybody here, if you have questions about that, come see me at City Hall. I have an open door. Because there's a master plan, and you can never describe it all in the media. There's a plan that's going to make everybody in the city and the existing fracks and all that a winner. I, I guarantee it. But I have to be able to describe it to you. But maybe it's just the fact that... Uh, you know, let's, uh, 
I can do what I can do in the position I'm in. And the great people of Crosspoint have, uh, have stepped up. So be proud of yourselves. I mean, vanity is a bit of a sin, apparently, maybe. But, but, <laughs> but in Christmas time, reach around and pat yourself on the back. You deserve it. You've done a wonderful job. So um, all I'm going to end it by saying, again, on behalf of council colleagues, my family, my wife Anne, my four daughters, I have a daughter too that's in and out of homelessness. She has been for 20 years. It's just who she is. And maybe that's the way, maybe somebody reached out and got me involved in this. And my two grandchildren, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. And I'm about to leave because I'm invited to the Filipino community has their Christmas party. And I will say, Malayakta Pasco. That's, ta, that's a Filipino for Merry Christmas. I have to say that to them. So anyways, once again, thank you, Pastor, for the invitation. Congratulations, everybody. For a guy with not a lot of church experience, you just preached, man. That was great. Well done. Well done. Well, that's pretty good stuff, isn't it? That's awesome. Very cool. All right, well, we're going to get underway. I need to apologize for my voice. Uh, it, it is doing this. So we might get 10 minutes in. We might get all the way through. We'll just see how it goes. Uh, but you can be patient with me. Uh, isn't it amazing sometimes how something so small and innocent and unassuming can completely upend something that's way stronger? What I mean by that is that we live with a two-year-old. And we, of course, being my wife and three daughters, and our youngest daughter is nine. And so what that means is that we, we were at a stage in life when most everyone was kind of independent. They were able to do things on their own, and, and they were able to, like, you know, make their own decisions. You can go to bed. You can pick out your clothes. You can get yourself a snack. It was, it was freedom. It was magnificent. And I'm not saying that it goes well all the time. It's a broken system at best. But there is some semblance of routine, of, of obedience, of respect. Uh, there is kind of some acknowledgement that we are the parents, that we're in charge, that we call the shots. And it, like I said, it doesn't always go well, but the framework is there and it's wonderful. But we also have a two-year-old. We have been fostering him for two years. Uh, he does not give a rip about any of that. None. He does not care who's in charge. He does not care who's calling the shots. He will do what he wants when he wants. And then, you know, he lives by his own routine. Um, whenever he tries to pursue independence, it goes terribly. His two favorite words right now are no and mine. As anyone can recall that stage of a toddler's life. Um, actually, this week, he crawled into bed early in the morning and uh, was laying right where my wife lays and had his head on the pillow. And she kind of came in. She's like, you need to roll over. He's like, no, my bed. And of course, Parenting 101 is don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh. And she's like, no, just roll over a little bit, buddy. Yeah, no, my bed. Like, just dead serious. It was great. Um, it was actually last Saturday night. I was preaching. He was at the very back, and he saw me come up and start to talk. And I'm not sure he's ever been in here when that had happened. So he was like, well, I want to come up and see him, because I'm his favorite, obviously. And so, and, and so my wife was like, no, no, you can't do that. He's, he's preaching. He goes, no, I preach. And it was great because I heard him say it and saw him at the back. And he said it again. He looked at me. He goes, no, I preach. <laughs> Final example is this week. We're at the Lincoln Light Show. 
If you've ever been there, it's the super elaborate display of lights, all queued up to music, it's all programmed. And we had gotten right up near it and we're watching it out the window. And one of my daughters asked, she's like, whoa, did this guy build this all by himself? Like, did someone build this? And this little voice from the back of the van pipes up, no, I build it. <laughs> so anyway, my two-year-old built the Lincoln Light Show. If you guys are interested in going to check it out sometime. No, I build it. There is no semblance of routine in our home anymore. I have lost all power. Our house is run by a power-hungry two-year-old overlord. <laughs> he doesn't care. There is routines out the window. Obedience is out the window. It should not be like that. I'm bigger than him, smarter than him. I am stronger than him. Right? I have mastered the basics of life, like speech. <laughs> you would think it would matter that I call the shots. It does not matter. It does not matter. Isn't it amazing how something so small and innocent and unassuming can completely upend everything? Well, that is a little bit like the story of Christmas. You had to remember that God's people had been waiting on a Messiah for hundreds of years. They had hundreds of years to, to daydream, to imagine what it was going to be like. Who is this Messiah going to be? This is going to be the absolute best and you've got to remember also that God's people were not a strong nation. They were a very small nation. They were often the ones oppressed or enslaved by the larger, more powerful, strong nations. And so they, they had all these visions, all these dreams, all these hopes that the Messiah was going to come, that, that he was going to be a mighty warrior, that he was going to be this conqueror. He's going to lay waste to all of their enemies. He's going to bring justice once and for all, and he's going to put this nation kind of up at the top where it should have been all along. Uh, and he comes as a baby. He shows up as a baby. And the most unassuming, innocent, small method imaginable for changing the world. A baby born to a nobody couple that no one knew in the middle of the world that no one was familiar with. But don't worry, it was announced to a handful of shepherds on their night shift. But that little baby went on to completely turn the entire world upside down. Isn't it amazing how something so small can completely transform everything around it. So we're going to be in the Christmas story today. Luke chapter 2, if you guys have your Bibles, verse 2, I bet some of you could like recite this from memory. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. Doesn't that all seem very unnecessarily detailed? Like if that was the beginning of a book, you would stop right there. You'd be like, no, boring. It's just place names. It's people names. It's all these kind of logistical issues but we need to remember that Luke is writing this, and Luke was a doctor. Luke was a guy that was intelligent, he was detailed, and so what he's really doing here is he's establishing all of the context that is necessary for us so that we can understand that this story is a real story. The Christmas story in the Bible does not start with once upon a time. The Christmas story does not start with, you know, in a galaxy far away, long, long ago, or whatever. What Luke is telling us is that this is a factual story. These were real people in real places. You can look it up in a history book. This happened. And, and he wants all of his future readers to understand this is a story that is rooted in reality. 
And so he's giving us all these boring details. So, you know, oh, it's the Roman Empire. Okay. And, and it's this part of the empire where this guy was the governor. And it was over here in this neck of the woods where this guy was in charge of different things. And, and we've got a guy named Joseph. Here's a little bit of his family tree, right? And he's giving us all these kind of weird details, but for no other reason than to time stamp it and say, this is a real thing that happened. That this is a factual historical event that happened in a real part of the world that concerned real people. And I think why he's partly trying to say that is because he knows that what's next is about to get crazy. And so he was reminding us that it's going to get crazy, but it's still reality. It's going to get crazy, but it's still reality. Don't ever let the Christmas story become a fairy tale. Don't ever let the Christmas story just become another story. We believe that this is a real thing that happened at a real time to real people. Amen? I also enjoy that he goes on to list all the world leaders at the time because I think he's also telling us something else. Something about how all of their power and authority really is about to be upended by a baby. All these people who thought they had power and authority all these people who thought the world revolved around them, all these people who thought they were calling the shots, they were the ones that were in control. I mean, they're, they're used to being the power players. These guys are, are, are named once. They're bit players. They're extras in the Christmas story. That would not have been what they were hoping. That's not probably what they were thinking. God, God is saying something to that. The angels don't even show up to those guys. The angels don't show up uh, to anyone that it was an emperor or a governor or a king or, or anyone else that had any kind of political or kind of powerful stature. His arrival is announced to shepherds. That's who got first dibs. It's incredible. Verse 8 goes on to say, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. I feel like this needs to be in King James every time. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will, be, that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger, and suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Pretty incredible event, isn't it? I mean, you'd think one angel would be incredible enough, but these guys get a vast host. They get the armies of heaven all show up and they sing. They get like an angelic choral arrangement. And it's crazy. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime event. This is the greatest choir that the history of the world has ever known. And they do it for a handful of shepherds. They didn't do it for a big crowd. They didn't do it for a big event. No one sold tickets. No one even knew this was coming. These guys just happened to be out at night and got to hear it. Why? Why shepherds? Why these guys? Why that way? That's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes today. And what we really need to know to kind of frame this best is a little bit about shepherds. Uh, shepherds were the worst. Think of, think of the people in the world that would like creep you out the most or upset you the most or that you would want to keep your distance from if you saw them walking down the road in front of you, right? That was shepherds back then. They, they were kind of the despised lowest of the low. No one wanted their daughter to grow up and marry a shepherd. 
they were often criminals, and so they had to be shepherds because there was no other work for them. They either failed school or dropped out or got kicked out of their homes, uh, or maybe they had a criminal record and no one would hire them. Whatever the case was, it was a bit of a cyclical thing where if you were a criminal, you probably became a shepherd, and if you were a shepherd, you probably ended up as a criminal. And they were nomadic, and they traveled around. They didn't really have a place to call home, and so they would often go and visit these towns and rob them and then just kind of keep on going and going and going over and over again. That was the life of a shepherd. And so it was kind of a despicable job done by who people that would have been historically considered despicable. These are the guys that get randomly searched at the airport by the TSA. Right? You can picture them in your mind. You know who these guys are. So why put a once-in-a-lifetime angelic choir show on for them? Why show up to announce the arrival of the, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to those guys? What's, what's the point behind that? I mean, I can see why an angel would have showed up for John the Baptist's parents, which happened. I can see why an angel showed up for Mary and Joseph, right? That happened. Why shepherds? Why these guys? And I think there's a few reasons, all of which we can learn from. Uh, the first one uh, is, is really kind of this, is that instead of showing up to these powerful, mighty political leaders or whatever, Jesus decides to show up to the lowest of the low. Our God likes to do things in unexpected ways. Our God likes to do things in an unorthodox method quite frequently. And he often shows up in ways that people were not expecting. And partly, I think, behind this one is that, is that God's arrival being announced to the shepherds was really kind of a way of, of almost shaming some of the other leaders of the day, the, the big empire leaders, the kings, and all these people. And God showing up to announce his arrival to the, the lowest of the low rather than the highest of the high says something about God. This is the way that God has worked consistently throughout Scripture. God often chooses the small things to completely upend the larger things. This is 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. It says, Instead, God shows things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chooses things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. God uses the small things to shame the powerful. God's got a pretty unique way of choosing the most unexpected and doing something incredible with it. I mean, this is the story of David, King David in the Old Testament. Israel wanted a king. They're like, all right, we're going to go pick a king. And it's going to come from this guy's Jesse's house. He's got a whole bunch of sons, young, strapping young men. And so they all line up one day and this guy comes to pick the king. David wasn't even invited wasn't even invited to the lineup because he's the youngest, scrawniest kid. He was out babysitting the sheep. And God's like, no, 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 bring him in. He's the king. He would have been the least expected. He would have been last in line. That's not the way that it was supposed to go. Goes on to actually be the one who kills Goliath. Goliath, this picture of strength, this picture of intimidation, the one that was calling down God's people day after day after day. They didn't get a warrior to go kill him, didn't get a soldier to go kill him, didn't get anyone to get, you know, someone that was trained with a weapon. He's like, no, nah, send out the kid with some rocks. And he chooses the smallest, the powerless, to shame the strong. He's doing something when he does that. It's a way of saying, God will be the one that gets the glory in this. Same thing happens with the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. 
Here's this leader. He's got 30,000 kind of men with him. He's a military conqueror, and he's going to go out and fight for God's people. And God's like, now you have too many guys. I need you to narrow that down a little bit. He's like, what? No, no, the point is to have more guys. And he's like, no, no, no. He puts them through all these kind of weird, bizarre exercises and, and it kind of whittles his men down to about 300. And at 300 men, God's like, now you can go. It's like, why, why are you doing this? They go out and they win. Why? Because God uses the small things to shame the powerful things. And it's a way of God saying, I did that. I'm the one who has the power. I am the one who gets the glory. Same thing with the Christmas story. God chooses an older woman who was unable to have kids to be John the Baptist's mom. Chooses a teenage unwed couple, Mary and Joseph, to be the parents of the Savior of the world. He doesn't choose royalty. He doesn't choose wealth. He doesn't choose power. He doesn't choose anyone with influence. He chooses the least likely, the lowest of the low. But in doing so, he's ensuring that he will be the one that is put on display. He is the one who will get the glory. He is the one who will say, <laughs> I am in, I'm in charge. I'm the one who has the power. I am the one who has the influence. This is what God does. He completely bypasses Herod and Augustus and Quirinius and uses the nobodies. And he turns the world entirely upside down. It's a way of saying, Goliath, you thought you had the power? No, it was me. Gideon, you thought your man had the power? No, it was me. Herod, emperors, Caesars, you guys all thought you had the power? It was me. I am the one who sits on the throne. I am the one who calls the shots. And I am the one who will have the last word. It's a great reminder that God is the one who has the power. He shows up to shepherds because God chooses the powerless and the weak to accomplish incredible things with. I think another reason that an angel shows up to the shepherds is that he's telling us something about salvation. See, every religion in the world, every moral philosophy in the world would tell you that it's really try harder, do better, get stronger, get smarter. If you don't live well enough, you'll come back reincarnated, try it again. If you don't live well enough, you can make it halfway, but you've got to work to get all the way to heaven. If, if you're not smart enough, well, uh, you're not going to make the cut. Salvation is only for those who work hard enough and can earn it. And Jesus shows up and he says, actually, it's for the powerless. Actually, my salvation is for the people who aren't strong enough, the people who couldn't save themselves, the people who aren't deserving of it, the people who weren't able to summon their strength and get smarter or better. Salvation is only a gift from me. And there is no other way to get it. There's no other way to get it. It would have been shocking. It's only Jesus, only Christianity that says that. It says, I came for people like shepherds. I didn't come for the Caesars. I didn't come for the, the emperors and the kings. I came for shepherds. And in his very first sermon, uh, you know, Jesus kind of steps out and begins his ministry at this point, still not looking at all like a mighty conqueror, looking very much like a broke carpenter, preaches his first sermon. So everyone you can imagine are kind of watching, kind of eager, like, okay, he's claiming to be the Messiah. What's he going to say? What's it going to be? And he starts off with, blessed are the poor. <laughs> blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. The whole world's going to belong to them. <laughs> and you can, you can imagine people like, oh, this was not a great start. That is not how the Messiah was supposed to like launch his ministry and, and do things. This is not what is, the poor, are you sure? The poor have no status. Those who are down and out have no status, no influence. This is never going to work. You're never going to upend our enemies. You're, you're never going to you know, claim victory for God's people if this is the method that you're using. And Jesus just keeps going. He's like, yeah, no, the last will be first. First will be last. 
And, and it's this completely upside down, backwards, unexpected, unorthodox sermon that they were not remotely anticipating. He is the furthest thing from the Messiah they were hoping for. And this is the word that he's bringing to them. And he's starting to turn things upside down. In the New Testament, the disciples keep asking him, so when are you going to do it? Right? When, when are you going to launch your, your ministry and your big campaign? When are we going to destroy your enemies? When are you going to put yourself on the throne? You know, when are you going to take Rome and, and get rid of them? And, and he's like, actually, I'm going to lose all my power and they're going to kill me. Not at all what they were expecting. That's not a mighty conqueror. How are you supposed to save the world if you let the world kill you? How are you supposed to conquer the kings and the empires if you're just going to let them put you on a cross? He's like, just wait. I do things a little bit differently sometimes. And you'll see at just the right moment, I'll kick open the door to my grave and I will defeat evil and I will defeat death once and for all. And I will come back and this time it will be as a conquering king. But in between now and then, this is the time for people to make up their mind about me. Between now and then, this is the time when people get to choose about salvation. It's not about conquering his enemies. It was about saving his enemies. It wasn't about vanquishing his foes. It was about loving them and giving them the ability to choose to love him back. If he shows up and conquers and destroys all of his enemies, then salvation is not for everyone. And that is not the God that we love and the God that we serve. He shows up to shepherds, and he's saying something when he does it. God uses the small things to upend the large things. He uses the weak to show the strong. And I believe another reason why he showed up to the shepherds, the angels did, was to tell us more about salvation, not just the how, but the who. The who salvation was for. Right, you get a picture of these shepherds. These down and dirty guys, they were wandering around at night. They probably just got done robbing some town. They're up on the hill overlooking everything. They're all having a smoke, looking around at what they robbed from these people's homes. And all of a sudden, the sky explodes, and an army of angels appear in the sky. No wonder they're terrified. right? They're thinking, you caught us. Shoot. I knew our day was going to come. I knew he was going to find us. God has been on our trail this whole time. And instead, instead, they're like putting out their cigarettes, stepping on them like, no, we've been good, I promise. And instead, what the angel says is, no, 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 no. I have good news. I have great joy for all people. You see why the angel clarifies that? What the angel is saying is, this is good news of great joy for people like you, for shepherds, for people that have been down and out, people that have been despised and thrown away and trampled on and looked over. I came to give good news of great joy to all people. It's a pretty incredible story. It makes a little bit more sense. It was incredible news for them to hear that the Messiah didn't come to punish, he came to save. That the Messiah did not come to bring retribution, he came to bring peace. He came to give people like them joy and hope. That may have been the very first time for some of those shepherds to have someone look at them and tell them that you are worth saving. You are worth dying for. You are worth value and love and hope that the God of the universe would come to me first and say, no, I came for people just like you. The shepherds would have been astounded. The angel goes on to say, this is, this is good news of great joy for all people and those with whom God is pleased. No one has ever been pleased with them in their whole life. And, and to hear that 
God might be pleased with me? That God could be pleased with shepherds? What kind of God is this? This is not the God I've heard about. This is not the God that we were expecting. This is not the Messiah that I've, that I've been listening about my entire life. If the good news is good news for shepherds, it's good news for everybody. That's what God is saying when he shows up and announces his arrival to the shepherds. It's good news for people that have somehow disqualified themselves from salvation because of past words, actions, thoughts, behaviors. Gospel is good news for the people that have been ignored and left out and trampled on their entire life. The gospel is good news for people who think they have no self-worth and no value, nothing to offer to the world. The good news is good news for everybody. It's the lowest of the lows, the shepherds were. And God said, I'm coming for people like you. This is who my salvation is for, for everyone. Imagine the joy they would have felt. I mean, Jesus is rewriting the entire story. He's doing it in a way that was completely unexpected and unorthodox. See, salvation was supposed to be for the good people, right? Salvation was supposed to be for God's people. And they were the ones who were going to be clean. They're neat and tidy. They obey the law. They keep their noses clean. Everything's great. Super. That, that's who Jesus is for. That's who salvation is for. And the announcement that shepherds were going to be privy to that kind of salvation would have been scandalous. Absolutely not. They're not going to be welcomed in the church. That's not who God wants to have with him in heaven. No, they're not going to be God's people. We still forget that it's good news of great joy for all people some days, don't we? We wrestle with this sometimes. There are people who still assume that salvation is for the good people, the churched people, the neat and tidy people, the people who obey the law and live well and everything is upstanding and right and know that the good news is still for whoever our equivalent shepherds are in 2017. And Lord, help us be the kind of church that if the shepherds of 2017 ever arrived, we would not keep them at arm's length, but we would invite them in and say, there is good news for you in this place. It is still good news of great joy for all people. Not just for people who have their act together. Not just for people who are ready for Christmas a week early. All people. Jesus came for the down and the low, the lonely, the lost, the neglected, the left out, the worn out. Back in the first century, had shepherds attempted to attend church, attempted to go to the temple, they would have been called unclean and unwelcome and kicked out. Jesus throws the door open at Christmas and says, my kingdom is going to be for everyone. That's why he shows up to the shepherds and says, there's good news for people just like you because you're going to be allowed in even though your whole life you've been told you're left out. I also think it's a great picture of arriving, showing up to the shepherds as a way of saying if the shepherds had been left up to their own to go and find God, they wouldn't have been able to. So God went and found them. That's Christmas, isn't it? That, that if, if it was left up to us to go find our salvation, to go find God, to work for it, to find him, to, to turn him into whatever it is we wanted him to be, would never would have found him. He had to come to us. And him arriving, the angel arriving to announce to the shepherds that he was coming was his way of saying, I have been pursuing you this whole time. I came for you. It's incredible. That's why he shows up to the shepherds. It's an unbelievable story. So unbelievable, in fact, that Luke was compelled to start it off with a whole bunch of boring facts because he knew people would not believe it. That's how crazy it was that an angel would show up to shepherds. He's like, no, no, believe me. Here is the empire. Here's the guy who is in charge. Here's the time. Here's the day. 
because what I'm about to tell you next is going to sound crazy. But the angels showed up to shepherds and said that the gospel was good news for them. Completely turned the world and the kingdom upside down. An angel shows up because God sometimes uses weak things to show himself glory in light of the strong things because God offers salvation to those who can't save themselves. Because God offers salvation to people no matter who they are. It's no wonder it took an entire choir to sing it. That's a pretty good song. And it's good news of great joy for all of us that are in this room. Whether or not you consider yourself someone of a shepherd or someone in anywhere else on that kind of equation, the gospel is good news for all of us. Christmas is good news for all of us. People who didn't expect it, people who didn't deserve it, people who still don't expect it, and all of the people in our own city and around the world that we feel similarly about, good news for them too. And so we celebrate that. We celebrate Christmas because of what it means and because of what Jesus has done for us through his arrival. I want to pray for us today. And I want to pray for you uh, specifically. Maybe you're here today and, and you would kind of maybe... Put yourself on the equivalent as a shepherd of thinking uh, church isn't for me, salvation's not for me, I don't think I'm deserving, I don't think I'm worthy, I don't think whatever, and, and we want to let you know today that you can pray and you can be a part of Jesus' family. You can pray and he will accept you and love you and save you and forgive you and give you a fresh start. That is why we celebrate Christmas. And so I want to pray for all of us today. Maybe you're here today and you're just continuing to be tired and worn out and weary Maybe even when it comes to your faith with this church kind of stuff. Like, really, is this, I'm getting tired of this. This isn't working. This is hard. Whatever, whatever this is, be reminded that the gospel is good news of great joy. There is joy in this for you, for all people. And so I want to pray for us today. I'll get you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads. And if you would be in this room today and you would say, I think I need to say yes to Jesus. I want to accept his gift of salvation. I've never felt like I could, never felt like I was welcomed, never felt like I fit into the church, whatever that looks like. But today, I understand that Jesus says yes to me and I want to follow him. If that's you today, I would just ask you to slip your hand up and we want to pray for you and pray with you. Awesome, let me pray for us. Jesus, you are good and you are worthy of our praise today. God, I pray that over this Christmas season, this, this next week, week and a half that we've got, I pray that you would remind us so strongly what it is we're celebrating, that you would remind us so powerfully why it is we're celebrating, that we would remember and see ourselves in that story as people that were far from you and undeserving of grace and, and, and not deserving remotely of salvation, and yet you came to us you found us, you pursued us, and you show your grace and your mercy to us. You are good and we love you. And God, I pray that we would draw near to you this season and we would feel that hope and joy and that peace, especially for people in this room that have been lacking it lately. God, pour it on. We need more hope and joy and peace. And as your church, may we be the people who continue to bring that hope and joy and peace into the world that needs it. And so we thank you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.